Nicolas Bornois of Capital Inc. And I would like to welcome you to today's podcast, uh, which is part of the series on riding the waves of a lifetime. Now, this particular series gives us the great opportunity to discuss, to interact with maritime industry leaders who share with us career and life experiences, as well as their insight on the industry's direction, opportunities, and challenges. We have with us today, Mr. Kenneth Koo, the group chairman and CEO of the Hong Kong-based TCC Group, and he is one of the major Asian and global shipping personalities. So we're delighted and honored to have him with us today. Before we start our conversation and welcome Kenneth, I would like to give you a little background on TCC, uh, on the TCC Group and Kenneth himself. As I mentioned, Kenneth is the group chairman and CEO of a hundred plus years old family shipping business. He represents the third generation in this business. Now, TCC was founded in Shanghai back in 1917 by Kenneth's grandfather and was then established in Hong Kong by his father in 1983. Today, the group has a fleet of 16 vessels, 10 dry bulk and six tankers. Kenneth joined the family business in 1983 after graduating from the University of San Diego. And 22 years later, in 2005, he took over the reins of the TCC group. Now, throughout his 40 years career in the shipping industry, Kenneth has focused much of his efforts in establishing a strong and reputable fleet management foundation for TCC. This has included innovative approaches to safety and technical management, as well as in areas of manning and training of seafarers. And we will see tangible examples of Kenneth's focus on in these areas. He has also extensively worked with Chinese and Korean shipyards, developing and constructing pioneering prototype merchant vessels. These technical exploits have obviously earned him a well-respected and very reputable standing in the global shipping industry. Kenneth has worked tirelessly in developing a leadership role in the maritime industry, both as a ship owner and as we will see as an industry statesman with a wider footprint and presence. I will mention just a few of his major initiatives. Uh, I would start by mentioning, for example, that he led a, a working group in the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association to develop the first ever set of guidelines for the selection and application of ballast tank coatings in 1994. I would say well ahead of, his, of uh, when this topic became at the forefront of the industry. Then he formed a working group of 12 mainland China maritime education training institutes to develop unified minimum standards of CFRS training in 1999. And then I'd like to mention that he developed a prototype Yangtzeh Max cave size bulk carrier with SWS shipyard in 2000 and then in 2010. One more example he and we will talk about that uh, later in more detail. He established a research and development program with the University of Southern California's Viterbi School of Engineering to develop combustion efficiency in marine diesel engines in order to address the environmental issues of greenhouse gas emissions from ships. And finally, I mentioned that Kenneth's wider industry footprint as past chairman of the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association and at present vice chairman of Intertanko. And in that, Kenneth continues to champion a stronger Asian voice for the maritime industry. So Kenneth and his family are interwoven with the development of China and Hong Kong. And of course, they have been major participants in the Asian and global maritime communities. And with that, I would like to welcome him to join, uh, I would like to welcome him joining our podcast and I would like to begin our conversation. So Kenneth, please join us and thank you very much for- uh, Thanks. So, Thanks very much. It's a, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> uh, we, we, we share the pleasure. And, and, and as I mentioned to Kenneth when we started our, our, our uh, 
discussion the other day, our podcast is not meant to be a quick run-of-the-mill type of discussion. We have the opportunity here to have an hour, more or less, and dive deeply into major issues and, and have the opportunity to tap into the inside of, in, of leaders like Kenneth. So Kenneth, I, I always highly remember and appreciate our cooperation back in the context of the uh, uh, 20, uh, 2019 Hong Kong Forum, the Maritime Week. Uh, actually, we, uh, we had it in November to, uh, 2020 and together with other major uh, Hong Kong patrons like uh, Tim Huxley, Richard Hex, uh, and Hing Chao, you joined uh, a panel to discuss about Hong Kong industry's journey through time and also where Hong Kong is, is, uh, is heading. And I remember that Tim Huxley had prepared at the time a particularly wonderful uh, presentation, a journey uh, during time for Hong Kong, and that can be found on the Capital Link's YouTube channel uh, under the uh, 2019 Hong Kong Forum. So let's now delve into, uh, into our discussion. The first question that I wanted to ask you is, uh, as I mentioned, you are the third generation of a hundred plus years old family enterprise. And your family is part of Hong Kong's legacy and development as well as China's. So can you please share with us a few milestones from the development of TCC Group from its inception in Shanghai to its establishment in Hong Kong, and then to its development to today. Yeah, well, you know, humble beginnings, Nicholas. Uh, Grandpa started his working life uh, as an apprentice in the stone quarry in Ningbo, actually in what is today the port of Beilun. And, uh, you know, uh, back then, this wasn't the place to make it big. So in his teens, he 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 eventually uh, he he was eventually able to make it to Shanghai, joined a uh, customs brokerage, uh, and uh, in 1917 uh, he formed TCC, which in Chinese stands for Taichung Chang. Uh, in uh, 1919, uh, he took over a a wooden sailing uh, junk. And uh, we started our shipping business. And obviously, obviously it was rough times. And I think our, the, the, you know, the, the, the next generation took a lot of inspirations on his trials and tribulations. So obviously he went through the founding of the, of the business. And then during the Pacific War, everything was lost. And then he started all over again. Uh, and then in uh, 1949, you know, starting all over again in Hong Kong, uh, in a completely foreign area, started building up the fleet, second generation stepped in. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, in, in, in 1983, my father and his younger brother decided to uh, reestablish the, uh, 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 the uh, TCC name in Hong Kong again. And um, I think probably two very proud moments for myself uh, was uh, firstly, my uncle KW decided that it was time to uh, return to Shanghai, uh, to Jiangnan Shipyard, you know, a yard that we've actually had a historical relationship with, you know, as far back as the 1920s. Um, and uh, we basically helped them design and build the first ever Panamax bulk carrier back in 1987. And, uh, you know, back then, I think between ourselves and perhaps worldwide uh, shipping, you know, under YK Pao, you know, we were the first, first of the Hong Kong owners to go back and uh, kind of try to work with China in, uh, in promoting uh, the, the shipbuilding industry. And then in, uh, in 2000, uh, when Shanghai SWS shipyard or Shanghai Waigao Chao shipyard was established, my father decided, hey, let's do it again. Uh, one of the main reasons was because that senior management of SWS Shipyard was basically his old friends and my old friends from Jiangnan Shipyard. So, um, you know, so with the help of a very renowned uh, naval architect and marine consultant, uh, the late Dr. Peter Cheng, uh, we, we worked with SWS to uh, basically to build the world, world's first, what was then coined a green cape. And uh, what, what this green cape meant was, number one, it was the first double hull bunker, bunker tank design. And number two, um, 
the bottles water exchange system was very revolutionary and perhaps still the only one of its kind in the world today, you know, whereby the, the ballast piping system allows for an internal flow, flow through as opposed to kind of that traditional flow through uh, up, uh, onto the deck and everything is discharged overboard below the water line. Yeah, so that so that ship was uh, so that ship was delivered in two thousand and three, and along the way, you know, we we uh, we also worked with uh, uh, a Korean yard. Today's uh, Hyundai Samho Shipyard, which back then was known as Hala Engineering and Shipbuilding Industry, um, we worked with them in basically helping them design and build their their first uh, uh, their first new building. Uh, in the Samho yard back in 1996, that was uh, 168,000 tonner. Uh, yeah, so, you know, so I mean, uh, uh, those were really the uh, uh, the highlights, you know, as, as far as uh, I can say, my formative years in the company, going back to Shanghai to build, learning the whole, le learning the whole thing about shipbuilding and, and everything. And um, I spent a lot of time with my uncle KW, you know, he unfortunately passed away in 1991. So from 199, so basically from 1991 until my father's passing, I was basically in charge of our company's fleet management. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Uh, clearly, few other companies can claim the legacy uh, and footprint that uh, you and your family can do. Um, so let, let me progress to the next question. And uh, obviously, you know, asking you how you got into shipping is kind of self-evident, uh, but I will come at it from a different angle. Now, knowing that you are going to be a major part of the family business and run it one day, how was it growing up with this notion? Uh, and uh, what does it entail psychologically or from a preparation point of view uh, before you assume your position? You know, Nicholas, surprisingly, that was not the case. You know, okay. I, I I was brought on board. Yeah, I was brought on board ships a lot, you know, as a child and all that. But my father, throughout our childhood, uh, literally until we were almost finishing university, his message to us has always been, don't even think about joining the family business. You know, we're giving you an education. You go out and you strike out on your own. You know, so I think I think what he didn't mention was, you know, I don't want to see you guys partying out for four years and thinking you got a cushy job coming back to Hong Kong for. So, you know, so because he's mentioned this was since since our formative years, that actually never crossed our mind. I mean, it was great to see to go on board the ships and all that. You know, I mean, it was such an adventure. But um, for example, myself, um, I had I mean, I, I was I was prepared to join the L.A. Times. Uh, you know, as a sports journalist, uh, you know, when I was about to graduate from uh, from university in the early 80s, that that was and is still my first love, you know, writing, uh, you know, um, I was an English major uh, and a political science major in college. So this is about as, as far away from shipping <laughs> as you can get. And then I think obviously towards my uh, towards the the beginning of my senior year uh, in university, dad started calling up. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought, I think part of the reason why is, um, you know, perhaps he was thinking, oh, you know, well, I'm getting on in years. And, you know, I, I think when you're young, succession doesn't mean much. But as even at my age now at 61, you know, I would say, yes, you know, I know how dad felt. And so these phone calls started coming in, you know, literally every other day. And it would just be a house life, blah, blah, blah. And then it would say, you ever th thought about coming back to the family business? I said, no, dad, you never told us to, <laughs> you know? And so it got to the point where, okay, message taken. I, I had to make a decision. And um, so, yes, I finally thought that I decided that this is something that I should do, uh, you know, remembering grandpa, because I was I was already in my early teens when my grandfather passed away. So all this is in my mind. So we came back and, um, you know, if you allow me to, uh, you know, a minute or two more. I, uh, and, you know, as I mentioned, I wasn't interested. I, I had I had no concept of shipping, you know, at all. And 
and and the big and and the big spark plug for me was when my uncle KW took me to the 100. I think it was the 120th anniversary of the founding of Jiangnan Shipyard in Shanghai. This is back in I think June of 1985. You know, we've already signed the contract for the Panamax and all that. And um, one of the commemoration events was the. The, the launching of a handy sized bulker, I remember the Guangzhou Transport Bureau. And, uh, you know, so when the guy named the ship and, uh, you know, and then you see that saw the ship uh, sliding down the, uh, the slipway, that was when the bug bit me. And uh, you can say that from there on, you know, ships became my passion. Well, I have to say that uh, I was not prepared for this, uh reply uh, clearly and that is uh, that is wonderful I mean uh, what a tremendous surprise and what a wonderful surprise uh, so now you have been lured back into the business you go there uh, you paid your dues you learned the business the nuts and bolts of the business and then you take over so can you share with us a few major milestones or challenges that you had to address uh, during your tenure? as the head of the company? Well, you know, first and foremost, Nicholas, you know, I think, I think, you know, I mean, to take absolutely nothing away from the achievements of the older generations, one of the first things I realized I had to do when I, when I, when I took over after that pass was um, mainly uh, addressing succession and also, uh, and also uh, what I call institutional institutionalizing to a certain extent the management practices of the company you know like any family uh, especially shipping company you know uh, it's uh, it, it, it's a business that's run extremely hands-on uh, you know uh, you know it's really a pyramid type of a uh, uh, hierarchy where the boss makes all the decisions so I, I figured number one first thing I had to do was to ensure that uh, to ensure that this would no longer be the case. I, I didn't believe in, I didn't believe, I personally didn't believe in running a company in that manner will sustain past my generation. And, uh, and, and usually, I don't know if this is true uh, elsewhere uh, in the world in terms of family businesses, but uh, the Chinese usually have a saying that you know, the first generation found, 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 finds the business Second generation expands the business. The third generation loses the business. <laughs> so I really wanted to make sure that would not be the case as far as uh, TCC was concerned. Um, we had succession uh, challenges because uh, so many of the, that generation of staff that served under my father and uncle were at the retirement age. You know, so um, so so that was also a big challenge and taking that opportunity uh, as well of looking to institutionalize uh, the, you know, management practices and all that. You know, I started working on that, you know, instituting, you know, a system of meritocracy and all that. Now, even with my children back uh, in the fold, you know, again, you know, they, they will, they are basically working on their own levels, you know, based on their own development and not necessarily saying just because you're cool, you're, you're high and mighty. Uh, so that was very important. Um, the other, the other challenge really was uh, uh, reducing debt um, because, uh, like all of again the elder generation, uh, it was always it was all it. it um, I, I think kind of a rule of thumb has always been, you know, you know, the higher the leverage, the more you can grow. So in the, I remember when I first came into the business in the early eighties, you know, I mean literally 100 100% financing was the norm back then even though even though LIBOR back then was at 17 percent you know and um I again I thought this was not sustainable this was um something that I argue with my father a lot uh during his lifetime so so one of the things was actually taking the opportunity of the eventual uh dry bulk uh you know, freight market boom, you know, I kind of, instead of saying, let's build more ships, I say, no, no, let's, let's pay down our debt. And uh, because I looked at this more as uh, not really paying back the banks, but I looked at it more as reinvesting back into our fleet, 
And you know, and what what better investment is there? It's your own. It's your own asset. You manage it yourself. You know, the revenue is good. You know, it's almost a no brainer. Um, so we we basically became debt free again uh, in uh, in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, and I thought it was just a good way to kind of uh, to restart everything and taking that opportunity, um, really looking at how we remain relevant in that ever-changing uh, uh, shipping environment during that day. And then, and then finally, I became more, more involved uh, you know, in terms of uh, participating in the shipping industry itself through the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association, Intertanko, which, which incidentally, just, just to, to make the record straight, I, I did step down uh, from, from my uh, vice chairmanship in Intertanko this past May because my tenure was over, but it was a very, it was a very, very good, uh, it, 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 it was a great learning experience. My son succeeded me uh, in, in the council and I was also involved in the, uh, the ISF, the International Shipping Federation, and really using that opportunity um, to raise the Asian industry's voice and profile. Yeah. So yeah. So mainly, so it was. It was really. Uh, it, it was really. Uh, it was really along those those lines. Um. Uh. You know. You know. Basically, trying to reinterpret what family business meant, or family shipping business meant, and uh, slowly, uh, slowly, kind of uh, evolving the company uh, towards a direction which, which I felt is more sustainable. Probably quite boring for some people, you know, but I thought that was probably the best way for me to start, uh, you know, succeeding my father. Well, you, you opened the door to a number of the questions that I wanted to, uh, to, to ask you. So I, I will jump right into them. I, I will start with what you said about reshaping the family business. And I wanted to, to, to ask, today we hear a lot about corporatization and about size as uh, trends or necessities. Uh, for flourishing in the shipping industry. On the other hand, we know that uh, shipping is a private business, a lot of mid-size or smaller owners. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to focus on, on the family-run business versus the uh, you know, more public uh, uh, structure. What are the advantages and competitive positioning of a family-run business in today's uh, shipping world? Well, you know, I, I think... First and foremost, I, I really feel that um, uh, we are able to stay within our strengths and limitations. Uh, this basically means that because we're family run, we're not listed, we're not dependent on uh, you know, funding, you know, either through raising debt or, or part private equity participation. Um, you know, we, we, we are not, because of that, we are not forced to grow by shareholders nor are we forced to grow for the sake of growing. So um, it, um, uh, we we, what we do have, Nicholas, is uh, flexibility. Uh, we can make quick decisions and uh, there's clear accountability because we're basically investing our own money that we, that, that we earn. So we have to basically be accountable to ourselves. Um, uh, I, I feel that uh, I think any well-run family shipping business today uh, around the world, so we, we are not the only ones, you know, um, I feel that in terms of uh, financing, you know, scale does not necessarily uh, influence the in terms of financing. So we are, we, I feel that let's say in our case, we are very competitive with, let's say, uh, even with publicly uh, listed companies in terms of securing a preferential uh, uh, financing terms and all that. Uh, you know, we do have JVs, you know, with partners that are bigger than ours and they actually come to us and say, why don't you take care of the financing? Because you guys get a better, you guys, you, you guys seem to be getting a better deal than us. You know, so that, that's important. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the other part is, is also, uh, uh, you know, um, I think part of the whole thing with a, with a family business is um, we, the company is still running, you know, based on family values uh, that my grandfather incorporated, you know, over a hundred years ago. And I basically enshrined those as what I call our, the core values within TCC, which is uh, accountability, credibility, reliability, and trust. And I still remember grandpa telling my, 
my father and his brother is saying that, you know, you know, this is, I depended on this, you know, not, not just success and failure, but life and death, you know, because those were chaotic times. And, you know, people came back to and say, you, you know, you're, you're a reliable businessman. So let's do more, uh, let, let's do more business together. So, um, so, so basically it's the family values uh, that has been holding our company together, you know, for the last, what, 104, 105 years right now. So, you know, and I feel that, 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 it, that does translate also into a, uh, a strength. Uh, um, and because of that, yes, we are, we are conservative. You know, we're not, we're never going to have a 50 to 100 ship fleet. You know, we feel that what we have now uh, kind of dealt, kind of dovetails in uh, to our management philosophy, you know, uh, our management principles and so on and so forth. And always anchored by these uh, core values that, that grandpa established. Thank you. I, I had uh, in mind to ask you about corporate values and so on, but you already answered that question. So <laughs> I, I will go now to the Hong Kong uh, aspect. As I mentioned, your family has played a major role uh, and a major part in Hong, Kong, Hong Kong's development over the years. So can you share with us, having seen and experienced all this development and transition, where is Hong mm -hmm. Kong today in terms of its positioning as a major maritime hub? And what do you see as the major challenges ahead and areas of opportunity also for Hong Kong? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you know, um, uh, Hong Kong, Hong Kong was, I could say, uh, at least here in Asia, uh, way ahead of the pack, so to speak, in terms of uh, developing itself as a, you know, an international uh, maritime center or shipping hub. So, you know, where many of today's maritime hubs are today, uh, Hong Kong has experienced that or has achieved that especially during the heydays of the 19, from the 1960s until I dare say the late 90s uh, to early 2000s. And I mean, the Hong, Kong, the, the Hong Kong ship owner, I would say was responsible for attracting the banks, you know, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the maritime law firms, marine insurance, so on and so forth to set up their basin. In Hong Kong, and as probably you probably probably know, you know that during during those days, um, you know, really the a lot of the international financing banks, many of them which are no longer involved in shipping, you know, their regional headquarters uh, was here in Hong Kong. Um, you know, so so part of that that intangible that Hong Kong does have uh, is that is that shipping legacy. You know, this this uh, we may not have a lot of ship owners left you know, from back in the day, but you can still feel that fraternity here. It, it's very tight as you, you probably have experienced yourself. Um, you know, so, so in a way you can say Hong Kong uh, has been there and done that. Um, but, then, but then at the same time, I, I feel that uh, especially over the past, you know, maybe the, over the past, Within the past 10 years, I think the focus has changed also as well in Hong Kong. Um, of course, you know, Singapore has really uh, ascended in the ranks uh, in terms of truly establishing itself as a, as a global shipping hub. Shanghai is the same thing. You know, um, uh, you know I, I, think, I think what Shanghai has, and I know we're gonna talk about this later on, but uh, you know, Shanghai's achievements on this uh, front, uh, 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 obviously, has also been very big. So, so basically, what I'm trying to say is, what has made Hong Kong unique in the past as a shipping center uh, is no longer unique today. And uh, and uh, and I, I think rather rather right now, what I see Hong Kong uh, trying to do is basically two things. And you know, and I have been involved in this uh, as a member of the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association. One, one is, uh, and, and both of them, I think rightly, uh, is focused on China. Uh, one, one, one is that uh, leveraging uh, our historical relationship uh, with Shanghai, the fact that you know, most Hong Kong ship owners have their roots in Shanghai and uh, really partnering with Shanghai uh, to raise China's uh, uh, maritime and shipping position uh, globally. 
I think that that that's one area that 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 uh, that between the Hong Kong and Shanghai uh, shipping industry, so to speak, we've been quite we've been quite uh, active on. Uh, the other part, of course, is this whole uh, thing right now about the uh, development of the Greater Bay Area, you know, which is this Shenzhen, Zhuhai, you know, uh, that area, uh, Sheko uh, around around the Pearl River Delta. Um, you know, Hong Kong obviously is in a in a in a very strong position uh, to play a leading role in that. And uh, you know, so I, I I feel I feel. I feel what Hong Kong's direction now is. Um, um, I I don't know. I I I personally don't feel that uh, uh, you know global focus should be uh, uh, should be should be abandoned. And I, I I certainly don't feel this is what's happening now. But what I do feel, Nicholas, is that the focus is really on Hong Kong weaving itself back into the fabric, you know, of China's. Shipping industry and Hong Kong trying to play a more leading role and perhaps reinventing itself in terms of being a shipping an international shipping center uh, uh, for China's purposes, you know, rather than for its own purpose. Yeah. So this is kind of the personal feel that you know, absolutely nothing wrong with that. I, I feel that uh, I feel it's part of evolution uh, also as well. Uh, and it's also part of addressing the realities of today, uh, and especially China's position now uh, in in the shipping industry uh, and 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 the maritime stage. You make an excellent point, and uh, and I recall in uh, the uh, in the latest Hong Kong uh, Maritime Week, we had the privilege to host a panel exactly on uh, discussing uh, Hong Kong's legacy and uh, competitive advantages mm. today, and. Uh, some of the points that were raised by Hing Chao and other people were exactly uh, how, as you mentioned, weaving back into the, let's say, the, the Chinese uh, environment, serving as a gateway uh, to Asia and to China in particular, and, and a number of other factors that you mentioned. But let me ask you specifically the following. Right now, we have uh, Shanghai. Uh, it has become, mm -hmm. I think last year, it, be, it became for the first time among the top three. So we have Hong Kong, we have Shanghai, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and obviously we have Singapore. And you have been active in all three. So I'm an international ship owner. How do I, how do I get the benefit of the best that each uh, global maritime hub or regional maritime hub has to offer to me to maximize my, my inroad into Asia? Yeah, um, you know, let, let's start with Hong Kong, you know, since we, we, we we're talking about just uh, this just now, you know, Hong Kong continues to offer advantages on tax, financial facilities and legal credibility to me, uh, pre COVID and hopefully we'll be back to pre COVID situations sooner rather than later. You know, one of the biggest advantages that sometimes people tend to be unaware of is the, the convenience of Hong Kong's geographical location. You know, we are never more than a four hour flight north to Tokyo, Seoul, and Beijing. And again, never more than a four hour flight south to Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Jakarta. And uh, with the exception of the South American and Antarctic continents, you know, we don't need to do marathon nonstop flights to any point within, you know, within the globe. You know, 15 hours is basically all you need. Hong Kong to New York, you know, Hong Kong to London, you know, Hong Kong to Jayburg in South Africa, you know, so that travel convenience combined with the fact that, you know, yes, you know, um, you know, China, you know, China has become so important uh, uh, to the shipping industry, you know, whether it's shipbuilding, ship repair, you know, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, uh, intelligence gathering, yeah, and all that. So, you know, we have the we 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 recently over the past few years we had the the uh, the mainland China high speed railroad, uh, you know, extended to to Hong Kong. So I mean, I mean, literally Hong Kong Shanghai, it's basically your LaGuardia to Logan uh, shuttle. I mean, it's literally every hour on the hour, you know, uh, pre COVID. So you know, so that travel to the mainland, you know, there's not there's no other country at this point 
that can uh, you know that 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 you know that that can replace that. So that that's also that that's also very important. Uh, um, but then, of course, in terms of as I mentioned just now, uh, a lot of what Hong Kong had in the past that was unique uh, that's no longer that's no longer the case now. So so um, moving on to Shanghai, um, I think with Shanghai um, the. The ship owner, or or let's say being based out of Shanghai, um, the ship owner has access to what I call the industrial aspects of shipping. I mentioned shipbuilding, repair. You know, you can also uh, dialogue with a lot of the end users. You know, be it be it steel mills, refineries, so on and so forth. So you know, there there is that that there there is that uh, advantage of you know dialoguing, gathering market intelligence, and and all that. Uh, and and at the same time. Uh, uh, to me, another strength of Shanghai that at this point in time, I haven't really seen anywhere else is just the sheer abundance of talent and shipping talent, uh, especially, you know, you have the major universities there, especially Shanghai Maritime and Dalian Maritime. Now they have alumni working in international ship owning companies, you know, charters, operators all over the world, you know, and, um, and, uh, and then you have all the other higher uh, institutions of learning, you know, from Peking University to Tsinghua to uh, Jiaotong University. So, you know, from, uh, you know, just from the talent pool, and then again, more particularly, as far as shipping talent is concerned, you know, at this time, I really feel there's no beating China for that. So setting up a base in Shanghai, I think I think those are those are the big advantages. And of course, the ease of travel. You know, again, you jump on a high speed train. You're you're. I mean, you're basically everywhere at any time. Um, uh, uh, and then I think I think let's say for ourselves being dry bulk owners, you know, the proximity of Shanghai to a lot of the East Asian shipping centers, you know, Japan, Korea, so on and so forth. That also makes it quite convenient at the same time as well. Now, what Singapore offers, uh, as I mentioned, you know, what, uh, what Singapore and Shanghai had, what Hong Kong, Shanghai, Singapore has, and, and I think Singapore has taken this a step further. And I, I think what we see today in Singapore is what I call a total shipping ecosystem. You know, yeah, the, the owners, cargo, finance, legal, you know, the, the shipyards are there. It's the world's biggest bunkering port. The brokers are there. And all that under a very supportive uh, 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 maritime port authority of Singapore. And, and, and then on a step higher, you know, the government's continued uh, strategic outlook, uh, you know, for shipping as one of their main economic pillars. You know, they're continuing to, the government continues to play a very proactive role in attracting more and more of the merit of the uh, what I call the global maritime uh, cluster to to Singapore, you know. So um, so you know, there's still the ease of travel, you know, uh, uh, the ease of uh, attending our ships when they come into to bunker or 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 you know or or for dry docking. You know, in the case of tankers and gas carriers to do cargo operations and all that. So basically, you know, these are the advantages, and I think what you see is that they all overlap uh, in one way or the other. Uh, but then at the yes, same time, we also happen. see that in the case of, yeah, they do. And in the case, but then in case of Shanghai and Singapore, they have evolved. They've taken up a lot of what I call the unique aspects that Hong Kong had in the past and they've developed in their own way. Yeah. I mean, overlapping is inevitable, but you're right. But then everybody yeah. is developing their own distinct uh, footprint. I have a lot of things to ask you, so let me, uh, yeah. Jump uh, to the next question. Moving away from Hong Kong, looking at the global industry, and you are clearly a major participant both in the Asian shipping market and the global shipping market. So, what do you see today as the major challenges? Uh, are they for the industry? Are they political, environmental, or commercial? Or all, all of them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think I can I can touch on on all three of them. I think. Commercial, uh, you know, again, uh, an old problem uh, that perhaps is being exacerbated even more in today's commoditized shipping market is just the inability of costs to be passed down uh, to the customer. 
uh, you know, perhaps with the exception of the container liner shipping industry, uh, you know, it, I think that, that, that gets very, that, that gets to be very difficult, you know, as compliance suddenly comes with a price tag, as opposed to back compliance is just filling a lot of forms. Um, you know, perhaps one reason for this is because, uh, you know, the documentation that's being used is so antiquated. You know, if you look at the NYPE, let's say for the dry bulk, some of the tanker charter party forms, you know, they've been around for a very long time. And um, I think the tendency team seems to be still skewed towards the charter's favor, uh, which basically means that a lot of the investments that owners put in, uh, uh, you know, to managing the ships, you know, to a high standard and all that, it, 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 it may not, it, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the beneficiary is not the owner uh, uh, itself. And, uh, and if this continues, you know, it becomes very difficult uh, to keep up with paying for compliance. And also it is a blow to especially independent traditional owners like us in terms of motivating ourselves to, uh, to invest more into, into quality. You know, when, you know, when I, I personally feel that perhaps quality is just not being acknowledged as much as it was in the past when I came into the business. Uh, uh, you know, um, I think, I think the, other, the, other, the other challenge that, again, I, I personally feel uh, is that entry barriers into shipping has collapsed completely. And I've always been of the opinion since, Nicholas, since the early 90s, you know, when, when, when ISM uh, was, was just starting to uh, being brought, drafted and all that, you know, I, I, I just feel that where, 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 whereas the, IS, the, the goals of the ISM was very noble uh, in terms of creating standards and all that and, uh, and uh, ensuring accountability on ships, how ships are being managed. I think one area that the ISM did go wrong in uh, was putting the burden of compliance on the physical manager of the ship and not on the ship owner. And uh, so while it, so while the ISM created accountability on how to, to on, on the standards that a ship should be managed by, at the same time, I've always felt that it also created a huge loophole, you know, for any Tom, Dick and Harry who's got the bucks, they want to be a ship owner. They want to feel that glory of, you know, seeing a VLCC being christened or whatever. They can do that, but they don't have to worry about anything else. You know, so, um, you know, so you have, so then you have a situation right now where the ship itself is commoditized. It's a piece of real estate to be speculated in. So everybody talks about supply, demand, what's going to happen. You know, I say, yeah, you know, but the problem is when the ship is, when a ship, and I know we, you've all, you've heard this for ages, you know, but I have to repeat this, but when a ship is only a figure on a balance sheet and, and, and the IRRs and the ROEs and the ROAs are all that matters, you know, it, you know, then you have a situation where any talk about supply, demand, balancing, you know, ship type and all that, it all doesn't matter. And, um, you know, and you see that continually today. So you have banks being ship owners, leasing companies coming out of the woodwork. And I see just more and more of them. And the other thing that really scares me is that, okay, you do have the ISM out. Um, I have absolutely no problem with some of the, you know, you know, the big ISMA members and the Anglo Eastern Wallums, you know, they, they're, they're still holding themselves up to a very high standard. But at the same time, they also, <laughs> I talked to them and they also would, are saying that, hey, listen, if our customers were knowledgeable ship owners, it makes life easier for us also in how we manage the asset. Now you're getting so many new third-party management companies that, you know, they're, they are, they, they are, you know, I, I don't know how they came out, but, you know, you're, I mean, let's say China, you know, you know elsewhere in the world, you're crawling with these small companies and uh, small management companies. And, you know, so when you have these financial outfits who feel that, you know, ships are a great investment, you know, then, then you're talking about what was, what is still a high risk, unlimited liability uh, uh, business. It, it suddenly, it, it, it's suddenly as if this doesn't exist anymore. 
you know, I mean, back in the day, it was for me, I was taught by my father and uncle, you know, you know, you know, back then it was okay. So what was the first thing I should learn, you know, um, go on board a ship. This is all going to be yours one of these days, kind of. So learn, learn about your assets. But that's not, that's not the case today. You know, it, it, it simply, so this whole collapse of entry barriers, you know, it's, uh, that, that's, that's very, very worrying. Of course, part of the reason why is all these QEs over the past, uh, you know, Lord knows how many years now, there's so much liquidity, you know, cheap liquidity in the market. Um, you know, uh, you know, but I, I, I do feel that the industry itself needs to recognize that. And uh, some some entry the, the entry you know barriers to entry needs to be reestablished not for competitive you know whatever is monopolizing the business but just to acknowledge the fact that this is an extremely risky business you know and it's not for it, it's not for anybody to to go into you really need to know your stuff on the environmental side um, you know I I, I think. Uh, um, what we're being faced right now is a lot of environmental policies being implemented without practical economic technical solutions available. Uh, you know, as usual, the ship owner is the guinea pig. Uh, you know, that that's very, very worrying. Uh, you know, I think I think emissions, you know, I, I know we'll talk about this later on. I think I think I think this is a uh, this is a perfect example, you know, of that. Um, other areas I feel uh, is is really a disconnect in terms of how these uh, how these how these uh, regulatory statutes are being implemented. The very good solution is the, is the uh, is the exhaust gas scrubber system. You know, so go figure. So you take the pollution out of the air and you dump it into the water. You know, there's got to be something wrong there. Um, I think the industry will need to uh, start looking at sound pollution. You know, you see more and more of uh, a concern, especially for marine mammals, you know, that whole cetacean species, uh, you know, accidents happening, whales being killed and all that. And, and just kind of the, the, the chaos that's, that's, uh, in, uh, that's being encountered in the ecosystem, in the marine ecosystem. And finally, personally for me, I've never been a supporter of, of merchant ships cutting through the polar, polar routes you know, for the sake of a shorter route, because, you know, we haven't even started assessing, you know, what type of, what type of damage this is, this is uh, creating. And these are ripple effects that will be with us for a long time, but shipping people are just so short term, I think a lot of that. And sometimes, uh, you know, I think we do need to take off our blinkers and look at the world around us. Political, um, you know, uh, we are always, as ship owners, we're always faced with geopolitical uh, uh, problems mm -hmm. and yeah. issues historically. Uh, you know, from the from the closure of the Suez Canal, you know, to the Gulf War, to the South African economic sanctions and this Arab League boycott and all that. So we've, uh, you know, we we we've uh, we 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 have found ways around it. Sometimes it benefited us, um, but today I think the landscape is even more. Uh, complicated, you know, what with the US-China tensions and all that. But then at the end of the day, um, I also tend to look at it, uh, you know, separately um, because politics is not going to put food on the table. You know, trade will. And uh, so the politicians can argue all they want. Yeah. But the iron ore, the grain, <laughs> the oil still needs to be transported. So, you know, we'll, you know, I, 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 think, I think the industry will deal with that. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I, I think to me, we're seeing that, you know, the, I think I think the country is still sensible enough to realize that um, they really couldn't go headlong only into the political aspects. So, Kenneth, let me ask you uh, about green shipping. That's one of the topics that we were just discussing. You have uh, been quoted uh, as calling uh, a number of the green initiatives as wishy-washy. So I'm very looking much forward to hearing your insight uh, on that, why. But green shipping is a broad topic. Uh, we talk about regulation, we talk about uh, fuels of the future, about who pays for it, about dual fuel engines and so on. So give us your attitude as a ship owner on, on the whole topic. Yeah, I think uh, first, and, first and most importantly, I think the industry needs to remember that this is a 
technical issue. Uh, um, I, I think I think we've started deviating uh, away from that. You know, every every industry, including finance and all, they're all trying to trying to play the experts. You know, in solving this problem. Um, secondly, I think amongst the three transport transportation industry uh, pillars. Uh, or I, well, I should rephrase that. I think amongst the three transportation pillars in our economy today, air, land, and sea, uh, I think I think on, it, only only the shipping industry requires the ship owners, which is the which is the customer, you know, to come up with solutions and bear the burden of compliance on emissions. That's in the auto industry. That's like asking asking the owner of the Mustang to open his hood. And tinker with his with his engine so he can comply with EPA regulations. That doesn't happen. Same thing with aircraft. Something happens, the manufacturers step forward. This is what's missing uh, as far as the shipping industry is concerned. IMO is saying to the ship owners, "Is your fault? Your fault? Your fault? Comply, comply, comply." But the two engine makers are in the background, and uh, you know there there there's there, there's just something very wrong with that. Um, uh, um, the the, the other thing that I, that, that I, the other fundamental thing that I see is that all the stuff we're reading about today, LNG, dual fuel, ammonia, green hydrogen, what have you, this all, this is all addressing, this is all good stuff, but it addresses the future, you know, and, and the thing, and the thing is kind of, for me, a gentle reminder there is nothing's been tested, and I sure as heck hate to see the ship owner being a guinea pig, nothing has been done about the in-water fleet now, which was what our, you know, you mentioned our uh, 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 R&D uh, uh, venture with USC. You know, I mean, nothing has been done, nothing has been done about how to address the in-water fleet. Now, all the complaints uh, right now from the world about shipping is, it's not about, it's not about the future of, the, uh, of, of uh, shipping technology and addressing emissions. It's the thousands of large bore engine ships that are plying the oceans of the world. And for all I, for all I know, it seems as if, as if the shipping industry feels that this problem can be solved. The in-water fleet emissions problem can be solved simply by calculating it to death. You know, EEDIs, EOXIs, you know, and uh, you know, all that stuff. My, my take has always been um, the problem is the diesel engine, combustion inefficiency. It only burns 50% of whatever is injected into it. So, 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 I mean, the whole thing with the USC project mainly was to, uh, was to address the present in-water fleet emissions -ish challenges. And then through that, hopefully we can, uh, we can, the shipping industry can gain the recognition uh, you know, from the world that ships are doing something and then, and then address the future, you know, which I do really feel that the diesel engine needs to go if indeed this future generation of alternative or future fuel powered vessels are still, uh, you know, have indeed uh, 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 departed, uh, you know, from the basic diesel engine uh, design. I think the whole thing that I mentioned before in the previous uh, Capital Link event of, of uh, you know, uh, not to build, not to build and not to build solutions around the engine, but to build an engine around the solutions. I think that's that's very very important. So I so I, I do feel that it's a very fundamental thing, uh, and I I do feel that the industry needs to look at more tangible solutions to address the in-water fleet now, and not simply to say reduce power. We've gone down that road before 30 years ago. We have five cylinder engines with two generators. They're not, it's not going to help. It's just kicking, it, it's just kicking the can further down the road. So let me now go to the next topic that I know is a topic of, uh, that you're passionate about, maritime training and education. So as I mentioned in my opening remarks, back in 1999, you put together uh, a group of 12 mainland China maritime education training institutes to develop unified minimum standards of seafarers training. Tell us a little bit more about that, uh, elaborate on the initiative and also the significance uh, for the industry. Yeah, um, that, that, that whole inspiration came on the heels of uh, the, uh, the new SDCW 97. 
Uh, and also uh, during, during that time, the PRCC fair was becoming increasingly popular in terms of being a seafair nationality of choice for many uh, international uh, shipping companies or ship owners. Uh, but we, we in the, within the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association's Manning Subcommittee, which I was the chairman of, we realized that um, there were many training institutions uh, in China uh, and there were a, a few fundamental areas that needed to be addressed. English, of course, was one of them. Uh, and also the fact that uh, the fact that there was a lack of awareness of what you know international standards of ship management is all about, as uh, as expected to be uh, uh, executed by the crew. So so we we basically reached out uh, to these twelve uh, 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 training institutions. You know, some of them were the Shanghai Maritimes, Dalian Maritimes, and so on and so forth. We got the, uh, we, we, we were able, also able to secure the uh, support from the Ministry of Communications. Uh, that, uh, and also uh, there was this outfit called Emityap back then. It's called, the, uh, it, it stands for the Association of Maritime, uh, Maritime Education Training Institutes in the Asia Pacific. Um, so it became a, it, it became a, a regional uh, effort. We're also fortunate in the sense that we had a huge support from the state-owned uh, shipping companies within China. So back then it was uh, Hong Kong Mingwa Shipping, Costco. They were all involved in that as well. And through that, we were able to uh, we were able to create standardized uh, minimum, you know, what I call minimum standards. And the goal of that was for any ship owner. Uh, 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 to employ a Chinese seafarer, they can be assured that that this seafarer meets minimum requirements. Very yeah. interesting. So, last question to ask you: China, Asia has has been the locomotive for the shipping industry. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your your point of view on the continued role of Asia and China for world commerce and trade and also the role of Asian shipping in the global industry. Yeah, well, Nicholas, firstly, I, I, think, I, think, I think some of the, uh, some, some, some of the facts everyone will, will, will realize in terms, of, in terms of what Asia means to world shipping. Uh, you know, Asia still controls over half of the uh, world's merchant tonnage. Uh, the, the world's shipbuilding and ship repair capacity and expertise all reside within Asia. Uh, you know, uh, four of the top 10 uh, shipping registries in the world all are, all, are all in Asia. Uh, and, uh, and, and Asia is becoming a global hub uh, in terms of chartering activities, freight trading activities, and, and what have you. So, so from that standpoint, uh, and then, of course, not to mention the uh, ship managers. You know, you have some of the, the main, the major ship uh, professional ship managers headquarters and commitment remain in Asia. So that that in itself is a statement, and I think this is going this is going to continue. Um, uh, as far as the because of globalization uh, and because of the fact that the Western economies are no longer developing the way they used to decades ago, you know. Yes, you know, we talk about China a lot, but Southeast Asia uh, are all coming into the equation as the engines for economic growth, simply because of their, uh, simply because of the demand for development from infrastructure to the fact that that, 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 uh, that middle income class uh, uh, that can afford more today, that's growing exponentially all over. Uh, Asia, so that that will always be uh, that that so that that will always be that area where 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 Asia will continue to be that driver, and I think many people, may, I think many many people around the world will see that. The only thing that's missing is the Asian voice, and uh, something that I'm always trying to to uh, to encourage, whether it's intertanko, intercargo, ICS, what have you. You know, we need to have a larger voice. Uh, that matches our expertise uh, and the fact that because so much of shipping's activities re reside in Asia, we are the executor. You know, we, we are that we, we execute the regulations and, and all that, but we need that voice to go along with it.
Kenneth, I'd like to thank you very much. It's been a, a very interesting and insightful discussion as expected. So I appreciate enormously having you with us. I'd like to thank you for your time and insight. And uh, I wish you uh, happy holidays and uh, a happy and healthy, first of all, new year coming up. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nicholas. And thanks for having me. It's been an equal pleasure and honor and uh, best wishes and season's greetings to yourselves also as well. Thank you very much. All the best. All right. Okay, thanks. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye.